This is chapter 10 in The Night Studio, a memoir of Philip Guston by Musa Mayer. I'm reading this at midnight with my Molly cat trying to make biscuits on my toes. Maggie is already out for the night on the right-hand corner of the bed. (laughs) Molly's trying to get settled. Openings is the name of the chapter. Chapter 10. In 1980, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art had a second major Philip Guston retrospective. The first such comprehensive exhibition of his work since the show at the Guggenheim Museum in 1962. It contained more than 100 paintings and drawings and traveled to Chicago, Denver, Washington, and New York. That April, as if in rehearsal for the opening of the retrospective, I promised my father I'd go to another exhibition of his paintings in Akron, Ohio, since he wasn't well enough to attend the opening himself and it was only a few hours drive from where we lived. It was the first opening I'd been to since the one in Boston six years earlier, and the first, but by no means the last, though of course I didn't realize that then, I'd attended in his place. Tom and I stood around awkwardly, drinking white wine out of plastic glasses, admiring the installation of the eight large paintings the renovation of the museum, not knowing quite what to say to the museum staff. I was grateful for the Dixieland band that played, that played in the entryway, making talk difficult. I tried to be as gracious as I could, but inside I felt as stiff as one of the George Siegel sculptures that peopled the other half of the museum. I phoned my father that night. The show looks terrific, I told him, because it had. Wait until next month, he said. I was pleased and a bit surprised to hear the excitement in his voice. It wasn't what I expected. I told him I was looking forward to seeing the show in San Francisco, but I had never enjoyed my father's openings. In fact, I dreaded them when I was a child. Each one was different, of course, different galleries, dealers, paintings, guests. But Egan or Janus, Marlboro or Peridot, museum or gallery, uptown or down, the things that bothered me remained constant. The crush of people, the loud voices and smoke, the incomprehensible talk. My father hated openings too, particularly his own. Those of his friends he found merely tedious, I think, but sometimes trying, too. I remember him groaning aloud at the prospect of going to another painter's opening, a man whom he liked, but whose work he felt was mediocre. Philip had it in him to be a loyal friend, a friend who was exquisitely sensitive to the impact of criticism or indifference and so the business of finding something to say to the artist whose work he didn't care for 
or worse, thought was canny or commercial. The problem of striking a balance between insult and falsehood weighed heavily on him. After the show at the Jewish Museum in 1966, he told an audience at the University of Minnesota in 1978, I must have done hundreds of paintings of shoes, books, hands, buildings, and cars. Just everyday paint, just everyday objects. I couldn't produce enough. I couldn't go to New York. No openings of friends. I couldn't go to New York to openings of friends of mine like Rothko, de Kooning, Newman. I would telephone Western Union with all kinds of lies, such as that my teeth were falling out or that I was sick. It was such a relief not to have to have to wait. It was such a relief not to have anything to do with modern art. It felt as if a big boulder had been taken off my shoulders. That's interesting because recently, here's an aside. And I recently decided I was going to paint what I wanted and not have to worry about trying to create something that was beyond my doing or something. I don't know what the real words are that I have to say here, but... I sort of feel this relief as well. I'm, I gave up even trying to figure out how to, you know, show my work constantly on even social media or on, um, you know, constantly trying to look for shows. And, you know, I mean, it's just a big, it feels like a big, uh, like a rat race, you know? <laughs> So, um, I can understand, I think I understand this a little bit, you know, it's a relief not to, I mean, I, I haven't had an open studio for a couple of years either. I'm just like, I think after having one or two in San Francisco and they just haven't felt like there was anybody that was really looking at the work in curiosity as the work or as the artist, but more like just to show up at an opening instead, you know, just to be seen at an opening. Just, uh, it's just kind of make a sour taste in my mouth right now. We'll see. I'm going to keep painting, but I'm just going to not worry about it. <laughs> not worrying about where my art fits in the art scene because it's, it, it may not, and that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm actually happier thinking of myself as an outside artist outsider artist right now at this point oh. anyway all right back to the text so he was just saying it was such a relief not to have anything to do with modern art it felt as a big boulder had been taken off my shoulders <sighs> even during the heyday of abstract expressionism there was very little painting being done that my father cared to see, to go and see. He sometimes told this anecdote. Quote, At the first exhibition of Barnett Newman's painting, de Kooning was in the gallery. We left together in total silence. Down the elevator and through to the street. More silence. Then, after a coffee, he said, Well, now we don't have to think about that anymore. End quote. <laughs> hmm. During the 50s, when my father's work was often copied, de Kooning once remarked, Well, Phil, 
They're imitating you now instead of me, putting all the paint in the middle. They always imitate the part of you, the part you most hate about your own work. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Because, you know, artists, we do, that's how we learn. I know that um, I actually began painting that way before I was even thinking I was really going to look into painting, sort of doing it just as, for fun. <laughs> I'm still working on an uh, English degree, you know, English major. And <laughs> I remember my one of my friends saying, I think you should just pick a painting and, of someone you really like and see if you can copy it. <laughs> so I did that. I didn't. My first painting ever was an O'Keefe, Jack in the Pulpit. I'll never forget it. I still have it around here. And, uh, you know, we look at artists all through our our art world, our art schooling, all that, you know, we always are looking at those that have come before us, you know, and those that have, you know, inspired us. We've all, we're constantly looking at what makes us inspire. What did they do? How did they handle the paint? You know, <laughs> and oh, um, I still do that to a certain extent, but copying them now, I'm just... You know, I think I, where did I read this somewhere recently? Or maybe it was, hmm, I either listened to it or heard it or something. Or read it, maybe read it in this book, I don't know. But something about, you know, you got to keep painting until your style. What was it? No, it was sort of like, you keep painting and the things that are not sort of like the things that you don't like about your work that keep reoccurring that's your style or something kind of like that I don't know exactly who said it anyway whatever I thought I was going to start paying attention to that we'll see if I do <laughs> oh okay back to the text a lot of asides in the beginning of this chapter yeah. So he says they're always imitating. They always imitate the part you most hate about your own work. Huh. Picasso, Leger, Mondrian, Descherco, and a precious few other 20th century painters, notwithstanding, it was the Italian Renaissance masters my father loved the best. In 1973, he made a painting he called Pantheon. In it are two of his perennial studio symbols, an easel holding a primed waiting canvas and a naked light bulb, the source of illumination for an artist who painted at night, as he had since, as he had since that boyhood closet in Los Angeles. In this painting, the names of five artists hover in the anxious air of the studio. Masaccio, Piero, Giotto, Tieplo, and Descherico. He must have really liked Descherico. It comes up a lot here in the book. He would sometimes tell a story, his half-joking, half-serious fantasy of meeting the great masters in heaven when he had gained acceptance into that confraternity, confraternity of one of them patting him on the back and saying, Not bad, Sonny. Pas mal. Pas mal. <laughs> 
You know, I'm going to have to go back now and look at his work and go to a show and see his work. And uh, after reading this, because I think I'll understand a lot more of his work. <sighs> Excuse me. Mm, it's late. But I wanted to read this chapter. Because of his own early acclaim, my father struggled for almost 50 years with the problems of recognition and success and the lack of it, fighting to maintain his privacy and integrity from the onslaughts of public expectations. Certainly, he understood how seductive fame could be. He must, at times, have longed to rest in some comfortable, easy niche rather than take the risks he did. Openings would not have been these grueling public occasions at which the painter, naked and defenseless, offered himself to the world. But my father's openings were excruciating to him. But my father's openings were excruciating to him, especially during the 50s. Or perhaps this is simply the period, the Sidney Janus openings, that I remember most vividly, preceded as they always were by the days, sorry, I'm like, I've got this down on my lap, I'm not reading it very well, let me do this, start that again, let's see here, my father's, but my father's openings were excruciating to him, especially during the 50s, or perhaps this is simply the period, the Sidney Janus openings that I remember most vividly, Proceeded as they always were by days and weeks of paralyzing indecision and anxiety on my father's part. Was he doing the right thing? Showing the work now? Would the critics, the public, understand? Or would this show prove to be another lacerating exercise in futility? It would have started out well enough, of course. These things always did. At the show's inception, there would, have a, there would have been a first flush of enthusiasm, like the starry-eyed beginnings of some new love affair for the new dealer or for the mending of fences with a former dealer. After the months of hard work and self-doubt in the studio, how could it not be an intoxicating thing? for an artist to have someone believe in his work so unreservedly. However, independent of spirit he considered himself to be, how could he resist the siren's song of commercial success without compromise? This reminds me, I just was reading along and I realized I haven't really addressed my newest news of my New York show being canceled. <laughs> I have a New York show, or I did, in January, and I got a notice yesterday from the curator saying that she canceled the show because she found out, I guess there was going to be some astronomical fees at this painting center in that we were supposed to show in Chelsea. It was a group show, and... I'm a little, actually now thinking about it, I'm a little disappointed in all of it. 
Whatever. She's trying to figure out another venue for this more or less social political show we are putting together. She put together. She actually works pretty hard. I was asked to be in the show because of the center was a painting center and she didn't have a lot of painters in the show. She knew I was doing some refugee work, so she offered me, you know, asked me to be in the show and I said, fine. And then she changed the whole flavor of the show and added more painters. Anyway, this has been a year in the making. <laughs> I mean, I was told about the beginning of last, the uh, beginning of this year that I was going to have that show. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So now I have nothing going right now for 2019. So I'm going to have to look. I'm going to have to get busy again, I guess. It's probably the right thing for me to have to figure out what to do with some of these Danish paintings and the bigger, larger section of refugee work. I just need to find a place to show them and have it in the public eye somewhere. They're not doing me any good here in the studio. Okay, back to the text. Where am I? Just made me think of that whole thing. Him talking, or her talking about the trouble he had with openings and whether he should show the work now and this and that. Yeah, well, at least he had people showing his work. Okay. It sounds like, though, he had a hard time. Also, you know, a long time between, you know, struggle for almost 50 years, the problems of recognition and success. Well, I've only been painting 20 years, so I guess I have a long more, 30 more to go. <laughs> I may be 90 or 100 when I finally say, oh yeah, you know, Miss Milne, she's a painter. <laughs> Maybe not even, I don't even care at this point. Right now, tonight, I don't care. Okay. Let's see. It would, would have started out well enough, of course. These things always did. At the show's inception, there were... They would have been... They... There would have been a first flush of enthusiasm, like the starry-eyed beginnings of some new love affair for the new dealer or for the mending of fences with a former dealer. Oh, that's right, we read this. After months of hard work... And self-doubt in the studio, how could it not be intox an intoxicating thing for an artist to have someone believe in his work so unreservedly? However, independent of spirit he considered himself to be, how could he resist the siren song of commercial success without compromise? Yep. My father was no more immune to this than anyone else. At least not then, in those early years. After months of isolation in his studio, he would feel pleased at the dealer's attentions, basking in the glow of friendly blandishments. That's an interesting word, blandishments. There would be a flurry of dinner engagements, visits to Woodstock, long evenings spent in comradely drinking and high-flying aesthetic talk. 
Hearing only the hinted, tantalizing possibilities of museum purchases and exhibitions. The rumors of collectors who cared about art, who covered museum walls with their gifts, and who were eager to see his work. My father would almost forget what had happened all the other times. Was this finally the dealer whose priorities were in order? Who actually understood what he was seeing? Who knew that his paintings weren't products? Oh my god, I relate to this. Oh, you would not believe it. Yeah, it's really hard when somebody's collecting your work, which I have had, not to almost feel like, you know, you're just a freaking machine producing product. And that's not exactly what we want to feel like as artists, you know. We want somebody to get the work, get it, you know. Not just, you know, collect it because, you know, they think it's something, whatever. I don't know. It's crazy. It's a crazy dichotomy. Okay, but inevitably such idealism would fade as the preparations for the show continued. Reality would interfere. The fantasy begin to crumble. <laughs> oh, yeah. not true. Perhaps the dealer complaining of high overhead would make decisions that compromise the work, shorten the show, or gave it less space. Yes. Oh, that is so fucking annoying. Excuse my French. But you know what? Large paintings need work, need space around them, and I, I have seen my work just crammed in a space in a collector's home or whatever. It's like they just don't get it how to hang it, you know. But whatever. Going on here, I need to stop. Whatever you call it. Meandering off the work here, the text. Or they shortened the show or gave it less space. Perhaps he would insist on hanging the show himself without consulting my father, or skimp on the announcements or the catalog, or reveal too badly that his motivations were tied to the marketplace. Perhaps he would invade the sanctity of my father's studio, bringing collectors looking for investments who would demonstrate by their foolish questions <laughs> that they neither knew nor cared about art, oh, but who craved a glimpse of the artist in his natural habitat before they bought his work. His oh, were such a fucking commodity. Really is sort of annoying. Anyway, or worse, perhaps the exhibition itself seemed like a failure. Perhaps the work appeared thin, inconclusive, weak. Perhaps old work was already being invalidated by new. (sighs) Perhaps the anticipated harsh criticism from certain quarters would be making itself felt, magnifying his already considerable fears. And feeling this, perhaps my father despised his own thin skin. As the date of the opening approached, the show would have become an infernal, destructive machine set in motion that could no longer be stopped. 
you know, uh, one more thing. I know when I got that message from the curator yesterday, or whenever I read it, I was somewhat, you know, I was like disappointed, but like I was almost like relieved. Because then I go, well, at least I know I'm not going to New York, or I don't have to, or I don't have to make that decision. And second, it's like, I don't have to ship the work. (laughs) It's like, but then, you know, (laughs) I don't know. It's really frustrating for us sometimes as artists. I mean, this gallery evidently is she didn't realize it I didn't realize it I thought it was a decent gallery to be seen in to have on your portfolio Um, but it's sort of a vanity gallery if you have to pay them to show the work that's generally not and then she talked about how they wanted you know she was going to present her catalog and they wanted to do their own catalog and they wanted her to pay for it. They wanted her to pay for it so they could give it away free. <laughs> or something like that. I just thought, and they were going to do their own catalog, not use hers. I don't know. It was just these different things that she sent in the mail. I was just like, oh. Yeah. It's just really hard to get any traction. All right, so for all these reasons and for others I can only guess at, there were usually strings of sleepless nights before each opening, nights leading to what were for me as a child days of tiptoeing around the apartment, taking care not to waken my father. (sighs) Often he was there still at the kitchen table in the mornings when I got up for school, not having slept, sitting and chain-smoking his unfiltered camels, a cup of black coffee at his elbow, eyes hooded by deep gloom. His smile of greeting seemed so hollow and ghoulish that I'd be relieved when he'd let his face slip back into this familiar haunted look I knew to be his. Hmm. I wasn't at my father's first New York opening at Midtown Galleries in 1945. I was two years old then. We still lived in Iowa City. But by the time I left home for college in 1960, there had been six more one-man exhibitions in New York. In those, it is those openings at Perdue and Egon, Egan, and particularly the, little, the later ones at the Sidney Janis Gallery that have blended into a single pastiche of memory, a jumble of images and sensations instantly evoked by the word, quote-unquote, opening itself. (laughs) We always arrived late at my father's openings, making our entrance into the already crowded gallery as if emerging onto a stage. Conscious of his distress, I worried about him. I looked all of I took all of my father's fears quite seriously, rather as if he had a painful but not mortal illness. Excuse me. Mm. It never occurred to me that... It never occurred to me then that I might view his torments as pitiable or unnecessary or even within his control. 
his anxieties didn't seem particularly strange to me as a child. They were inevitable, natural phenomena to be endured like bad weather, but scary nevertheless. Still, he seemed more stable than some of the other painters he knew from the things I'd seen and stories I'd overheard. It was what being an artist was all about, I thought. Certain events brought emotional upheavals. That was how it worked. (sighs) On the way to the opening, I would keep stealing looks at my father in the taxi. He seemed so miserable. My mother kept her eyes on him too. Pale and distracted on the trip uptown, Philip would unfold himself with difficulty from the taxi, then stop on the sidewalk outside the gallery, rooted as if he couldn't move. My mother fluttered ineffectually around him, patting him, trying to calm him down, urging him to go in, telling him that everything would be fine, but only succeeding if he paid any attention to her at all in drawing his anger. Embarrassed, I was aware of the passerbys looking at us. Who was this raving, wild-eyed man? (laughs) Ah, an artist. That explained it. (laughs) His fears would rise in a crescendo. The whole thing was a mistake. A terrible mistake, he'd cry. He would, he should be in, he should be in Woodstock, working. Dealers were parasites, the critics worse. How had he let himself be talked into this madness? <laughs> Finally, he calmed down and entered the building grimly. A criminal resigned to his punishment. We got to the elevator. We got in the elevator and began the ascent, hearing the noise of people talking coming nearer as we approached the floor. But then... Miriable dictu. The elevator door opened. (laughs) We made our entrance, and my father was suddenly, inexplicably, all right again. Our arrival was, I see now, like a light turned on in a child's bedroom, where imagined terrors are deflated abruptly by prosaic actuality. But it wasn't until 20 years later that I understood his transformation as it wasn't as sorry i'm reading the second line but it wasn't until 20 years later that i understood his transformation as it echoed in me as a counselor i hated doing crisis intervention on my way to the hospital after a late night call i always imagined the worst slashed wrists bizarre paranoid delusions but once there seeing what was what the mundane invariably providing the mundane invariably provided a calming antidote to my fearful fantasy just as it must have been for my father when he arrived at his openings the next moment philip was swallowed by a circle of people leaving my mother and me standing off to one side Ah, is that the artist? I could hear the whispers. Yes, that's him. That's him. My mother and I stood there, cloaked in our common shyness, 
cut adrift by his sudden recovery. Someone usually took pity on us and came to the rescue. I mumbled polite greetings and tried to pay attention, but my thoughts were still with my father. Lost in the crush of people, I couldn't even see him anymore. But now and then I heard his voice holding forth, easy and booming now. That infectious laugh of his strangling into a smoker's cough. Wait. I couldn't even see him anymore, but now and then I heard his voice holding forth, easy and booming now, that infectious laugh of his strangling into a smoker's cough. Now that he seemed happy again, I wanted to be near him, to have him hoist me up in his arms as he had when I was a little girl and give me one of his sloppy kisses, but there was so many people clustered around him that I knew, as I knew so many things without being told, that I should stay away. He belonged to them now. This was his night, his party, and I tried to be happy for him. I let go of my mother's hand and slipped along the wall around the periphery of the crowd. It seemed to me that the paintings were lonely too. No one was paying much attention to them, despite the fact that they were the, they were the reason we were all there. We were all here. Sorry. <laughs> Finally, someone noticed me, an extravagantly dressed woman. Her bracelets clattering. Oh, she gushed in a breathy voice. You're Philip Guston's daughter, aren't you? I nodded. It was embarrassing to have a fuss made over me, but some part of me was grateful nevertheless to be special in someone's eyes, if only for a moment. Oh, you must be so proud of your father. He's such a wonderful man. So brilliant. I just love his work. I smiled, blushing. An answer didn't seem called for. And it must be so interesting to be the daughter of a famous artist. I nodded again. I never knew what to say at, the at times like this. Clearly my father's daughter was important. Oh, sorry. Clearly being my father's daughter was important. A lineage that conferred some sort of distinction. I was somebody. But it was an uneasy distinction, uneasy even then, because it was unearned, not attached to who I really was. The woman with the bracelets turned away from me to speak to her bored companion. Isn't she just darling? The noise of talk and laughter became louder. Cigarette smoke formed a visible layer of haze over my head. Drinks were spilled and mopped up again. And finally, finally, the crowd began to thin. People were leaving, exchanging kisses, going off to restaurants and theater. A space cleared around my father. He was still deep in discussion with someone, gesturing a, gesturing, a drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other. He was not, at first, aware of me standing there near him. But then he noticed me, holding out his hand to me, smiling, he pulled me to him, giving me a squeeze and wet kiss full of whiskey from the dealer's stash back in the office. Wine was served at the opening. 
and the smell of camels. This is Ingi, my daughter, he said with a tremendous pride, overwhelming me with a sudden loving, suddenly loving look, as if the first, sorry, as if the very fact of my existence made him happy. Most of these evenings ended the same way. We were dispatched in several taxis to Chinatown, where my father ordered for everyone without a menu. There was more laughter and loud talk and rice wine around the table to help the whiskey someone had to help the whiskey someone had brought. My father was again oblivious of me, a little drunk now, holding forth to his friends. I sat there, crammed in beside my mother, picking at the strange food on my plate, sleepy but not sleepy but perfectly content. Was there ever a time when I wasn't aware that my father was important to other people? When I wasn't competing with the world for my claim to his attention? Even when I was four or five, I can remember feeling that uneasy mix of pleasure and embarrassment and jealousy. It was impossible not to feel intimidated by his fame. Those effusive compliments I always heard at openings exacted their toll. What right did I have to question him? Who was I to call attention to myself? We were on a seesaw, my father and I. The more of a somebody he became, the more of a nobody I saw myself to be. And the less right I had to share, uh, see, and the less right I had to my share of his love. It always seemed that so many people, so many other people wanted something from him, that their claims too were real and undeniable. And I saw how put upon he was by their demands. It was impossible not to. He seemed to have such a terrible time saying no to anyone. Well, then, I told myself, I would be the perfect daughter. I wouldn't be like those students of his, always asking for recommendations, or all, or all the others, the dealers and collectors and academics and hangers-on, who wanted interviews, visits, lectures, explanations, asking, always asking. I made no... I would make no demands, maybe then. By the time I was a teenager, I had learned to make use of his fame. Pretending sophistication, I was prepared to let myself be dazzled by art world celebrities to drop the famous dames in casual references to, exp to impress my friends with their ordinary fathers. I was trading on this heavily for a while, using my father's name as ballast. Openings. What emblematic events these are for me. For most of my life, I have felt precisely as I did at my father's openings, invisible until recognized as his daughter, cloaked, no, masked, in that comfortable, curiously eclipsing sense of self which is not me at all again and again it seems i have to remake the discover remake the same discovery that reflected glory yields little warmth 
While the early openings blur and become confused with one another, the last of his openings I attended with him is certainly clear. That of the retrospective at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in May of 1980. <clears throat> it was after the San Francisco exhi- exhibition that, ah, sorry, it was after the San Francisco exhibition had already been scheduled, the catalog and other arrangements for it well underway, that my father had suffered his heart attack. Even after a long recuperation, he was very weak. A marathon painter only the year before, possessing the kind of stamina that could keep him on his feet for 36 hours at a time. Wow. On his feet for 36 hours at a stretch before his huge canvases he could stand only with effort. He shuffled when he walked. He had to work flat, sitting down at his drawing table. It was terribly frustrating for him. Feverish with ideas, he felt imprisoned inside a failing body. I have to stop here. I understand this in some ways on my own. When I was in school, well, let's see. When was that? School and after school. I was working on these large pieces that were like eight foot by... Let's see, they were eight foot by six feet, I guess. And I had like eight of them going. And I think I had five of them in the painting studio. And five, five of them in the painting studio. And I think three up in the sculpture studio. Well, anyway, up and down ladders and just working like all through the day into the night at times. I was preparing for the... Um, for our end of the year show. Anyway, um, I I really now have slowed down so much in my work. I mean, I still paint large, but there's no way I could be doing eight big, large canvases at once. And I see some painters still do that, you know? I could maybe work the three at a time. But, um... I mean, I can work on three large ones at a time and then have some small ones going. But I don't have the space anymore anyway to do the large, all of that work. But I guess I'm reflecting on the change in my energy. And what else reminded me of this when you said his feeling body? Oh, Per Kukavu, the Danish painter. I recognized what happened to him of course he had a stroke but um and he thought he would never paint again he fell down the stairs and then he couldn't see something right and after his stroke with his brain injury I guess so you could see him sitting in front of in the film I saw you could see him sitting in front of his paintings and knowing what he wanted to do in the work but couldn't get up and do it on his own anymore now that would be extremely frustrating so yeah this part really rings true as we get older or or as our body starts to fail so yeah he was feverish with ideas he felt imprisoned inside a failing body During that year, my parents had again retreated from me. I was to be protected, not burdened. 
Grateful as they might profess to be, they were embarrassed by my having helped them the previous March. Though they said nothing, it was clear to me that they didn't want to feel obligated. Gratitude made them uneasy. My parents worried over emotional debts as if they were back taxes, accruing penalties and interest they could ill afford. They came to rely on the few they came to rely on the few they did allow to help them. And these were often people my parents felt they could repay financially. My father's dealer and his wife, David and Renee McKee, his accountant, Louis or Louis Bernstein, a former student from the New York Studio School, Steve Sloman, who was then in the process of photographing all of my father's paintings, and Ed Bladder, an electrician and carpenter who did all the physical work around the studio. As frequently as I dared, I called Woodstock. Sorry, I didn't move this book again. As frequently as I dared, I called Woodstock for the occasional laundered bulletins my mother would give me over the phone. It was only with great difficulty that I could pry out the real painful situation from the proffered fabric of reassuring half-truths. Telephone conversations with my mother became inquisitions on my part. Was he sleeping? What did the doctor say? How much was he drinking? Had he at least tried to cut down a little on the smoking? Consequently, I knew nothing of the preparations for the San Francisco show, the pitched battles between Henry Hopkins, the museum's director, and my father over the selection of paintings, the arguments over itinerary, timing, the catalog, and all the other decisions that had to be made. I knew little of the genesis of this exhibition or of the degree of openness there might be to it in the art world or even how worried my father was. The Guggenheim retrospective in 1962 had been hard for him. I knew, but let's see. The Guggenheim retrospective in 1962 had been hard for him, I knew, but that had been a summing up a cutting off in mid-career. This show, coming after the work of the late 60s and 70s, and especially after his heart attack, seemed triumphant, somehow a celebration of life in art. I hoped he saw it that way, for the climate in the art world had finally begun to change. After 10 years, there had been scattered, grudging, critical acceptance of my father's late work. Beginning late in 1978, there had been a string of important sales, a number of them to Edward Edward Broida, a a Los Angeles collector. Ed Broida's interest had been enormously encouraging to my father. We were all planning to go to California. It was to be a gala occasion, that opening. A family affair. We would all be in San Francisco together. My parents, my husband, Tom and I, my sons, even my Aunt Jo and Cousin Kim. All of us together for a week 
it would be a wonderful time. My sons, David, was then 16 and Jonathan 14, who saw their grand who saw their grandparents so rarely would finally get to spend some time around Philip in his element among his life's work. The thought of this was particularly gratifying to me. For years I'd been trying to put my children together with their grandparents so to kindle some real spark there. But whenever we took the boys for visits to Woodstock, their energy and interest seemed to tire my father and shorten the time I felt I could spend with him. We took the red eye to California from Columbus, Ohio, somewhere over the Rockies, with the movie over and everyone asleep. Our big, wide-bodied jet dropped like a stone in a downdraft, a quick, screaming nightmare ride that left us wide-eyed and jumpy for the rest of the flight. On my father's, on my parents' flight out from New York, I found out later my father had been breathless and pale. They had given him oxygen. <sighs> but once we were safely in San Francisco, the, moment, the momentum of the week took over. My father was putting us all up in style. I was charmed by the elegant hotel room with its fresh cut flowers and view of the bay. That first morning, still sleepless, Tom and I went riding with David and Jonathan through Golden Gate Park on rented bicycles all the way to, Pacific and, to the Pacific and back. The smell of eucalyptus was in the air. Mm. <laughs> Park is gorgeous. Later that day, we went together to the museum. My father seemed pleased with the installation of his work. We strolled through the galleries where final touches were being put on the show. Excuse me. Paintings from all 50 years of his career stood on the floor, leaned up against the walls on which they would hang. There was martial memory and dial and beggar's joy all of them, cheek by jowl, for the first time with his late work. The earliest painting there, Mother and Child, painted in 1930, when my father was only 17, had been cleaned for the first time. None of us had, been, none of us had seen it since the cleaning. Having grown accustomed to its orangey-yellow appearance, the product of 50 years of cigarette smoke, we expressed shock at its raw, vivid colors. My father smiled at our reaction. It's just as I remember it, he said. He walked slowly from painting to painting, visiting each one affectionately, occasionally patting a picture gently. This is one show where I can touch the pictures and no one's going to tell me not to, he said and laughed. He ran his long tobacco-stained fingers over their surfaces like a lover caressing the cheek of an old sweetheart. It had the feeling of a reunion. He stopped before a painting from the early 50s. You know, I remember what I ate that day when this picture finally came off, he said. It was the old cedar bar days. I had a studio on 10th Street. I went in the bar, and Bill de Kooning was there with Franz Klein. I'd been on the picture for two or three weeks, and 
I had this look on my face, I guess, because Bill said to me, good strokes, eh? You made some good strokes? We all laughed. Some of these paintings, sequestered in the Midwestern museums or in private collections, Philip hadn't seen since his last retrospective, almost 20 years earlier. Many I had never seen, except in reproductions. Behind my father trailed an entourage of family, museum people, David and Renee McKee, Michael Blackwood, and his film crew, who were shooting footage for a documentary film. That day, my father was as happy and relaxed as I have ever seen him, talking and joking with everyone. They brought him a chair and he sat and smoked, holding forth, as he always did, to a circle of his admirers. Predictably, someone asked him about the change in his style, how it felt to work now as opposed to the early 60s. No different, he said, there's no difference. Philip looked slightly pained at the question. You know, comments about style always seem strange to me. Why do you work in this style or that style? As if you had a choice in the matter. He took a drag of his cigarette and paused to think. What you're doing, he said slowly, is trying to stay alive and continue and not die. My father spoke of a time when he was working in his big cadaverous loft in Chelsea over the fireplace, over the firehouse. I hadn't painted for a month or two, he recalled. My painting was beginning to bore me what I'd been doing. I tacked up a 10-foot canvas and squeezed out tons of paint. And I thought, I'll paint the room. I'll paint all this junk. I had an eight-hour I had an eight-hour stint. I painted the cracked and broken mirror, the paint table, the floors, the useless wires hanging down, and other easels and stacked up drawings. I looked and I painted. I didn't think. And I painted the whole thing. In fact, I ended up with, I looked at the thing and Philip gave an embarrassed little laugh. Jesus, well, I'm a painter, you know. It looked like a bonar. Wonderful, lots of colors, and I'd been doing black pictures, these heavy, these dark, heavy pictures. We lived across the street. I went across and woke up Musa. It was about four in the morning, and I said, you've got to look at this. And she came, of course, and said it was wonderful. Then I couldn't sleep because I thought, what's happening? Am I going to have a new career as a painter? Does this deny all my previous work? When I came in the next morning to look at it, my euphoria was gone, just disappeared. And the painting itself looked as if I could just peel it off. It didn't stick. Naturally, I destroyed it. (laughs) I drifted in and out of listening to all of this. All of this drawn also by the luxury of a private viewing of paintings in the empty in the empty rooms. I went to find If This Be Not I from 1945, 
and was surprised to see how small it was. From across the gulf of years, I stared at that little girl's round face, my father's image of me, as if she could tell me something, offer me a clue. As if the picture, simply because I was captured in it, must include some special message for me, some particular wisdom my father could impart to me only in that way. The title, a line from a mother goose rhyme, Quote, the old woman and the peddler, end quote, had been suggested by my mother. I knew an old woman falls asleep by the side of the road on her way to bark it. While she's sleeping, a peddler comes by and cuts her skirts all up to her knees. Awakening, the old woman's sense of herself is shaken. She begins to shiver and weep. Suddenly, she doesn't know who she is. Lock, a mercy on me, this can't be I, she cries. Reassured by the idea at least her little dog will know her, she hurries home, saying, If it be not I, he'll loudly bark and wail. But her little dog doesn't know her after all. I walked back into the large gallery where my father was standing with the museum director, the McKees, and my mother. They were making ready to go. Philip was tired now, I could tell. His tall form stooped from the effort of standing. Before leaving, he turned to survey the entire gallery where all of his late paintings leaned against the long walls. My father looked around, then sighed. It's not so much a painting show, he said. It's like a life, you know. It's like a life lived. The rest of that week went by too fast in a blur of good food and hospitality and sightseeing. One day we all drove up to Muir Woods to stroll among the redwoods, stopping to rest every few feet. My father listened attentively to my son David talking about the age of the huge trees around us. Another day we drove down the coast all the week. All that week, Philip was always just out of reach. Nothing had changed about openings. In all these years, at a distance, there I was, still longing for him. But there were two monuments, sorry, not monuments. There were two moments that were later on to assume an inflated importance in my mind. At the museum, my father collapsed after a particularly strenuous morning and was brought back to the hotel. I found him stretched out, gray and sweating, in a darkened hotel suite. His restless brown eyes set so deeply in their dark sockets, they appeared like a mask of his own invention, the skin of his face puffy and florid. My mother was frantic. My mother was frantic with worry, but he was ignoring her, too weary for any part of her panic. He asked me to sit with him, and I did, feeling the usual pang of guilty satisfaction I always felt when I, instead of my mother, got to take care of him. He didn't want a doctor, he said. They'd hospitalize him, he knew, and he'd seen quite enough of coronary care units. No, he only wanted to drink and to rest, he told me. The museum people were running him ragged. I reminded him, as I had before, that it wasn't necessary to give everyone what they wanted. 
He smiled weakly, pressed my hand. You're so right, darling, he let he said, letting his eyes close. Why do I do this to myself? We didn't talk much that afternoon, but I stayed there close by him until it till he was able to sleep. And the next day, of course, he was back on his horse again, riding another punishing round of interviews and lunches and lectures. The opening was at the end of the week, the day before we left. We weren't seated with my parents at the formal banquet at the museum. Instead, they put us with my aunt and cousin at another table. I felt angry and hurt, but there was nothing to be done. Left out once again. After the dungeness crab and rack of lamb, there were the usual speeches. When it was time for my father to talk, he spoke of his happiness, his gratitude for the exhibition. In his gracious way, he thanked the museum, the corporate sponsor, his dealer, his wife, and his friends. And finally, unexpectedly, he thanked me, feeling that intense beam of his love from across a sea of tables. I was overwhelmed with tears. It was as if he had reached down to that little girl again and picked her up in his arms, making it all worthwhile. Little enough, perhaps, to me, it was everything. It had to be. Three weeks later, at the home of a friend in Woodstock, just as dessert was being served, my father died. <laughs>